I am Jewish and proud because Jews have always done what's right. We've led the fight for gay rights. Harvey Milk fought to ban discrimination based on sexual orientation. Eddie Windsor was a leader in the fight for marriage equality. Miriam Ben Shalom challenged the ban on gay people serving in the military. We've helped lead the fight for racial justice. Our rabbis were BFFs with MLK. Together with black leaders, Jews helped to establish over 20 HBCUs. During the civil rights movement, Jews were disproportionately involved in the protests. We've led the fight for women's rights, for equal pay and the right to choose, and against discrimination in the workplace. In Judaism, when it comes to helping others, no action is too big or too small. The Jewish principle of tikkun olam tells us that we have the power to change the world. And there are so many ways to do that. And this is why I am Jewish and proud. Welcome back to another episode of Our Interesting Times. It is my pleasure to have Dr. E. Michael Jones back on the show. He, uh, of course, is the editor of Culture Wars magazine, the author of many books, including the most recently published The Dangers of Beauty, The Conflict Between Mimesis and Concupiscence in the Fine Arts. Um, uh, Dr. Jones, how are you doing this evening? Good, Tim. Good to be here. Well, thanks for coming back on the show. Um, you also have a book coming out fairly soon, I understand. Yeah, the Holocaust narrative. Is that the printer right now? Is that the working title? Yeah, that's the title. Period. Yeah, narrative is a very important word in that title. I think <laughs> I run into various narratives uh, throughout the news cycle <laughs> and reading about history, and it is a narrative, as they say. I guess you are you 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 studied American literature. That was your PhD, right? That's right. That's right. And for so narratives. And Good so, na- yeah, you, you, Nathaniel Hawthorne, right? Was your that uh, was your uh... right? I just did a, a a long piece that brought me back to my roots with Nathaniel Hawthorne fifty years ago, uh-huh. involving his daughter Rose and cancer and people dying of cancer, and the big question in Hawthorne, which is basically why he couldn't go to confession. This was a man who who was obsessed with sacramental confession. Mm-hmm. Found out during doing the research that. Uh, his original plan for the Scarlet Letter was to have Dimsdale confess to a Catholic priest. So as early as that, he was thinking about confession. And that, of course, is the fundamental bind of the Scarlet Letter. You know, how can you go to confession when you're a saint? Uh, the, the, the Calvinist church at that point, the Puritan church, was the visible elect on earth. Uh, so what happens when the visible elect commit adultery? What do you do then? That carried all the way till the end of his life. 
And I dealt with primarily in this article, uh, The Marble Fawn, which is the last novel he completed. So Hawthorne uh, wrote Franklin Pierce's campaign biography. He was rewarded by giving the, the uh, made, made consul in Liverpool. He earned enough money there to take his family to Rome. And at Rome, he's confronted with the beauty. It, keep, it ties in with my book on beauty as a transcendental. Uh, but also the fact that the Catholic Church is responsible for this beauty. And so he's brought to St. Peter's uh, Basilica. Uh, Henry, Henry James made the point that Hawthorne was incredibly provincial. He spent his, until he was 50 years old, he lived in little New England villages like Concord. Uh, and now he's where you have clapboard, white clapboard congregational churches. You see, the architecture in Rome must have been a sense a shock to his senses. First of all, I'm, I was, you know, I, as a child, I was exposed to big uh, churches in Philadelphia. You know, there were not little clapboard congregationalist churches. But when I went to St. Peter's, I was stunned, stunned by the beauty, uh, by the magnificence, by the scale of this. And so this is Hawthorne. Seeing this for the first time, obviously a man who's sensitive to beauty. He's an artist. And not only that, so God brings him to, to Rome, and then he brings him to St. Peter's, and then he brings him to the confessional. And there he is, confronting the confessional. Actually, you've got a chance now. And for some reason, he couldn't do it. And so he goes back to uh, Concord, and the big critical question as of 50 years ago was why is Hawthorne melancholy? And no one could answer it because the critical profession was incapable of reading Nathaniel Hawthorne at that point. I I was I remember a class I had with Jane Tompkins who eventually ran off with Stanley Fish to become the power couple of lit crit in the 1990s. And she's going on about the Scarlet Letter and everybody's thinking there's something funny about this. And then finally the lady next to me blurts out, well, isn't adultery wrong? <laughs> the simple answer, yes. <laughs> what to say? If she says yes, well, then why are you committing adultery? And yeah. why is everybody on the faculty committing adultery? And why do they... <laughs> but if she says no... Then you say, well, why are we wasting our time reading something? This guy's agonizing over having overdue books at the library or something. <laughs> yes. He agonized because he used the wrong fork at dinner the other night. You know, so they couldn't answer it. So if you can't answer that question, how are you going to basically talk about the fact of sacramental confession in the Catholic Church? And that's what the marble font is about. There's no other option here. That's what this thing is about. How are you going to talk about it? How is the gender crowd going to talk about this now? Well, they can't. So they're completely cut off from literature. The classic immersive, that's why they hate it. That's why they, why they want to get rid of these books. Does anyone teach Nathaniel Hawthorne anymore? I no, I remember reading it in high school. I remember you Scarlet Letter, we you know studied it. And it was about guilt and... In the 80s, most people understood what that meant. I think maybe now students might have a problem understanding guilt associated with the story because even if they were exposed to it, they wouldn't say anything wrong with it. <laughs> you know, the, under the current dispensation, you know. Yeah, well, people people deal with guilt 
the Jewish way now, which is basically project it onto the victim. That's the way they deal with guilt. Or, yeah, turn into some sort of political activism or something, yeah. The Identity. Yeah. Upset. So all of these all of these ladies who had abortions uh, are driven to feminism because they can't bring themselves to can go to confession. <laughs> Obviously, I'm talking about the Catholic ladies where that's an option. And so this become a huge political power in, in this country. Uh, I'd say the swing vote in election, certainly the swing vote in Pennsylvania that brought that Jew Shapiro into the governor's office. I mean, what was his claim to fame? He attacked the Catholic Church. Yeah. And the ladies whose souls are burdened with this guilt uh, feel good. Yeah. Yeah. Those, they're all a bunch of pedophiles. Oh, I feel better about my abortion now. Yeah, that's uh, the psychological effect of of that of that scandal. The um, you know, you can find absolution and of course consolation in the, in the confessional, uh, but the I guess the shortcut for many is to find comfort in the crowd, and seek that and justification for their actions. And of course, the those who control the media and public discourse is there to you know provide that justification or rationalization for their sins. Yeah, so we have Gay Pride Month now. Mm-hmm. So the, the, these people who are these poor bastards who are crippled with guilt about sodomy can go out and walk around in their jockstrap uh, in public and feel good about themselves. You know, uh, this is their way of dealing with guilt. So we're back with Hawthorne. You're dealing with an honest man who's trying honestly to deal with the issue of guilt, which plagues everyone, plagues everyone. You know, and you've got a country now like called New England, where you, you, it's based on the categorical denial of guilt. Uh, basically, you're either predestined to be to be damned or predestined to be saved. And there's not a damn thing you can do about it. Well, that's a way of short short circuiting guilt. Nothing I can do about it. Well, I guess that's OK, then. If that's it, it's like so you end up like. Uh, Huck Finn and Ralph Waldo Emerson and say, well, then I'll go to hell. Or if I'm the devil's party, then I'll be with the devil. That's what Emerson, Emerson was a, anyway, anyway, let's, let's, that, that's what it's about. It's going to be appearing in the next issue of Culture Wars. And it will, pro I'm probably, I'm going to bring out a second edition of my book, The Angel and the Machine, that's going to answer that question. Uh, so I was glad to get back to it. Glad, glad to get back to the issue. After what, 40, 45 years? <laughs> well, I got my, I got my uh, doctorate in 78. So what is that now? Yeah, 45 years. Yeah, I did my math right. Yep. So, <laughs> so you, but you blew the dust uh, off the manuscript and <laughs> started rewriting. <laughs> it's going to be different. Obviously, that's the beginning yeah. of my intellectual odyssey. Yeah. And this is, you know, 45 years down the road. So it's going to be different. You know, I don't, I'm not the same guy that I was then, even though I am the same guy. Obviously, I'm the same guy. I'm still dealing with the same guy. It's just that I, I'm dealing with it in a, in a, I think it's a better way because I can bring a lot more to bear to it than basically what was allowed back then. You know, the kind of formalism, there's kind of formalist. Anyway, it, it wasn't. It is what it is. I'm glad I wrote it. It launched me on this career, uh, and I'm true to it. I'm not going to repudiate anything I did. I just understand it better now. Interesting. Great. We'll look forward to that. 
and of course the um uh tonight i have you on you you uh uh i wrote this uh piece this article the uh did you come up with the title yourself i did i i have to plead guilty to that yeah because it's i thought it it sounded like you uh i got it why it's easier to talk to a robot than to a jew it's about chat ttp artificial intelligence and this uh uh, Wunderkind, this uh kid, rather, this uh Noval Harari Harari, right? That's how Yoval Harari is that what's his name? Harari, the world's smartest Jew. Yeah, he's part of the Davos crowd, right? He's he uh part of all of the elite operations. He's an Israeli professor, he's a homosexual. He just he just uh, I I wrote if you want my take on his earlier stuff, is he wrote a book called Sapiens, uh, which is chapter one no chapter two of logos rising yeah we did an interview a couple of years ago about that yeah yeah, so yeah. A textbook example of every philosophical mistake that an ignoramus will make uh <laughs> yes. Yuval noah harari a man who's completely innocent of any philosophical understanding of anything anything he a flagrant self-contradiction flagrant category mistakes, one thing after another, just complete ignorance. Uh, but uh, he's got Jewish privilege. Well, he's double because he's homosexual too, right? That's right. He's got double. You can get, it's like double dipping on your pension or something. Like that. <laughs> so everyone, he's apparently he's very, very, um, uh, I guess everyone wants to hear what he has to say. I don't know what credibility or. Does anyone know what this guy wants to hear to say? We <laughs> Who wants you to hear what he says? So, so you can go. I mean, I have an English friend. He said he walked through a bookstore. There's all this Harari, you know, force-fed into the the mind of the British reading public. So, you know, they promote certain people for certain reasons, and it's obvious that this guy is doing the bidding of uh, the oligarchs in general and the Jews in particular. Uh, uh, just making you just one stupid. I, I. I I don't want to get into. I read Logos Rising, read the second chapter, mm -hmm. and go chapter and verse about his stupidity. And that's right after reading about the stupidity of the four atheists like uh, Christopher Hitchens and their Darwinist stupidity. If I recall, it's uh, the chapters on the idea of meta history, right? Yeah, that yeah. concept of meta history, the revival of meta history. The, yeah, um, that he... it's a good thing, but uh, whatever it means, I think it's just history, but. Yeah, I, th I think that's good because there was a positive re positivist reaction. Uh, the English just got to the point where they were quibbling over insignificant verbal issues uh, and lost sight of the big picture. And that became classic English philosophy. And that was a waste of time. So this is good. Good. We're back on the big picture. Now, uh, this article, uh, why is easier to talk to a robot than to a Jew? You write about this, um, I guess, Yoval Nora Harari's uh I guess he's ringing the uh, warning bells regarding artificial intelligence, saying that maybe became sent uh, that um, it may become self-aware, sentient, and take over. It needs to be regulated, and this is what's so dangerous. And uh, apparently, he's worried about um, again if it has to be regulated. I guess by I guess people like him, I suppose. But I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, well, he's he's saying basically that's not going to happen. Uh, he he mentioned uh, the Matrix and Terminator as this machine that takes over. Machines mm -hmm. are not going to take over. Okay, he he's right in that regard. Uh, machines cannot make choices. Only human beings can make choices because 
they uh, can choose the good. And you have to recognize the good, and a machine can't recognize the good unless you tell it, this is good. So it, with Siri, it's simple, you know, she tells you directions, that's pretty straightforward, but they'll also give you warning about traffic. So um, if the traffic speed slows down to zero, the route gets red, and that means bad. That's bad. She does, look, Siri, I, I call her she because she's got a female voice. I've developed this deep personal relationship with Siri, uh, who gets mad at me whenever I uh, stop to pee on the highway and tells me to return to the route. Uh, but they can't choose to uh, to move. They can't move because they're they're not bodies. So it's all been programmed into them. So what's what's the big deal? Well, I think this is precisely what Harari's talking about. What he's talking about is the threat in the future is that the Jews will lose control over the internet. I think that's the, you read between the lines, that's clearly what's happening. And that's what we have to worry about. And that, to some extent, is true. It is true, because if you're gonna program these computers, you have to program them accurately for things like computational things. And if you ask the right questions, you'll come up with the wrong answer. So the best, the best example uh, uh, was, uh, the guy, someone sent it to me, you know, uh, he said, uh, I asked chat, uh, chatbot, how many Jews died at Auschwitz? Answer, 1.1 million. Uh, what happened to their bodies? Answer, they were cremated. Uh, how long does it take to cremate a body? Answer, four hours. Can you cremate 4.4 million bodies within the three-year period that Auschwitz was in existence? The answer is no. Well, wait a minute. The chatbot just became a Holocaust denier. This is what uh, Harari is afraid of. What do we do now? Well, do we have to reprogram the computer? Well, now you got problems. Do you want them to do? You want them to do simple math? Uh, are you saying they can't do simple math? So that's why uh, you can convince uh, a, a, a robot to come up with an answer. Uh, so no, it's going to take uh, centuries to do this. Well, that's impossible. So therefore, those people could not have been. Uh, therefore, that 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 story fails. It's not true. Now, I, I got into other things with this computer. Um, is sexual liberation a form of political control? That's the question I asked. Uh, as, as an AI algorithm, I have no opinion on this. <laughs> that was the, well, honey, I thought you, didn't, you, you, you don't have a body. You haven't had sex with some other computer. Uh, and then it says, goes on to say, but many people feel that sexual liberation is necessary, blah, blah, blah. And it gives you the standard sexual liberation is not. Well, is, is the computer coming up with sexual liberation? No, it was programmed to, to say that. So now, uh, well, okay. So somebody then asked, another guy got on this thing and said, uh, uh, did, the, did, did the Jews uh, use pornography as a form of control? No. And we have to guard against anti-Semitism. So okay. <laughs> obviously the word Jew sets something off there. 
Okay. okay. All right. So now we know that. So, and then he goes on to say, the guy who asked the question, uh, did the IDF broadcast pornography when they invaded Ramallah in 2002? And the computer comes back. I apologize. They did do that. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> you got a computer apologizing to you. This is better than talking to Charles Moskowitz. <laughs> I can't get to first base with Charles Moskowitz, but at least the computer is honest and will, will apologize because it doesn't have these desires, okay? This desire to maintain Jewish privilege, which is the fundamental thing you run into when you talk to a Jew. And so basically everything is going to be adjusted to that end. And that's not something the computer is going to do because the computer is not Jewish and it doesn't have these Jewish desires. So that's why it's easier to talk to a computer than to a Jew. In the article, you, you, you well, let me see if I can pull the quote here. He warns um of, a, of, a, of, a, of an intelligence, an artificial intelligence, which has the ability to manipulate and control the language and therefore take over the, the temples and banks, which I thought was an interesting <laughs> way to put it. Um, and uh, and it's almost like an alien coming, an alien race coming and taking over, over the human race. He's talking about persuasion. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, what's so in other words, if you make a persuasive argument, you can get the person to change your mind, mm -hmm. change his mind, unless you're talking to Charles Moskowitz, in which case you can't. You can't get to first base. You just can't. There are certain things that simply cannot be questioned. The whole discussion is based upon these taboos, and so you just can't get anywhere. That's, that's the difference. That's the difference, because the computer doesn't have desires. It doesn't have a desire to have Jewish privilege to maintain a superior position in the culture and so on and so forth. So it, it'll be honest with you. It can't do certain things. It can, uh, so if, if it's not being honest with you, that's because it's been programmed to be dishonest. And so once certain words kick in, the honesty goes out the window, the computer honesty, and suddenly you're being lecture to by this computer about how you're a bad person because you don't believe in sexual liberation. Now, on the other hand, if it were an honest computer, it would have said, well, you need to read Libido Dominandi, Sexual Liberation and Political Control by E. Michael Jones, because he's the only guy who ever came up with this idea. Now, that would be honest. But again, there's the name, you know, you are not allowed to speak that name. The Jews are famous for saying that. It used to be Jesus Christ, and now it's uh, E. Michael Jones. So that's the way they control the thing. And they want to control it, and they're, un they're, they're afraid that an honest computer will wreck something like their Holocaust narrative. Because it's based on logic. Yes, I told you. The computational yep. skills that you have make mm -hmm possible to make the claims that they've made about uh, Auschwitz can't can't do it won't work um yeah the um he Harari says uh that AI hacks the operating system human civilization any language because we use language to create God and money 
And then you write, when Harari tells us we've just encountered an alien intelligence, That's not in outer space, but here on Earth, the, the conclusion becomes inescapable. He's talking about himself and the group which gives him his identity, namely the Jews. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Well, of course, language is important. What do you think Logos is? It's language. Yeah. And you can have a, 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 a computer mimic this or do it in some computational sense, you know, following from the principles. Uh, uh, yeah. So you can do that. So, so the danger to the Jew is that language can be persuasive. And you can persuade someone that this is the truth, even if it goes against their desires. But no, the desires always enter in and, and basically shut down that discussion because you're not allowed to talk about that. And then when it gets really bad, when they really can't maintain that discussion anymore, they make it illegal, which is what they did. You know, Debbie Lipstadt, the year is 1993, the same year that Schindler's List came out. Uh, Debbie Lipstadt created this delict called uh, Holocaust denial. Completely bogus, doesn't mean anything. It means anything Debbie Lipstadt doesn't like. Anything that will decrease her political clout is bad, and that's Holocaust denial. Now, the, the interesting thing is that Schindler's List is an example of Holocaust denial. Because when you get to that famous the scene, the scene this is all part of Part of the narrative that I describe in my book, okay, at a certain point of uh, the Holocaust became associated with pornography. Uh, Ilza, she-wolf of the CS, of the SS, is one of the early uh, Holocaust porn films. And one of the tropes is, ladies, take off your clothes, you're going into the shower. So Spielberg has to do that because that's part of the whole narrative. It's just one of the tropes that you can't leave out anymore. So he gets the ladies into the shower, and guess what happens? Warm water comes out of the shower. Well, wait a minute, Stephen. You just you just denied the Holocaust because what's supposed to come out of those shower heads is gas, poison gas. Well, if hot water came out of the shower, how those ladies die? How'd they die? That's now you you now you understand why Debbie Lipstadt had to create Holocaust denial at the same time that Schindler's List comes out. Well, she's now the U.S. special envoy to, to combat to combat against anti-Semitism, Holocaust, and our globally. She's part of Biden's minion, mm -hmm. except that it's much more than a minion now. It's a whole congregation, and we we talked about that. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the you know May it May uh, is Jewish American Heritage Month, and it's the month that we. Uh, thank and acknowledge the Jewish contribution to American history. And it's all... every month Jewish Heritage Month. <laughs> so, yeah. If, uh, so if you're happy with uh, economic policy, thank Janet Yellen. If you're happy with the federal government's enforcement of, of the borders, thank Alejandro Mayorkas. They're all Jewish. If you're happy with American foreign policy, thank Anthony Blinken. He's Jewish. Uh, so the list goes on and on, right? <laughs> Don't forget Merrick Ireland. Yeah, the state of justice in the country. And, Wait, so we had the story of that prosecution in Pennsylvania of mm -hmm. the Mr. Halk, uh, totally uh, under Merrick Garland's auspices, who says basically sends the word down. I want prosecutions for face freedom of access to clinic entrance cases. And so the, the, the liberated ladies, this was a totally female operation in Philadelphia. Uh, I don't know whether they all had abortions, but I suspect they did. 
and that fueled their animus, and they're going to go after this guy. So now in Maryland, you have uh, uh, an Antifa guy comes up and beats up two 70-year-old men and goes, nothing's going to happen. Where This is the dual standard you get when you have a, a Jew who's in charge of law enforcement who believes that abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. Antifa, to... Isn't Antifa a Jewish operation? At least its origins? Pardon me? Isn't Antifa a, a Jewish operation? At least its origins are Jewish, aren't of they? Of course it is. Yeah. Of course it is. So they, they can beat up uh, people with impunity. They can break the law with impunity because they have Jewish privilege. Uh, but conservative Catholics now will go to jail for exercising constitutional rights. That's what happens when you allow a Jew to become chief, chief law enforcement official in the United States. And I said, draw the conclusion, no Jew should be allowed to be have governmental office. And you can hear the howls. Jones is an anti-Semite. This is awful thing to say. And so I get a letter to the editor from subscriber to Culture Wars, Yehuda Littman, an Orthodox Jew from the from Brooklyn. And he says, Jones is right. Jews should not be in a position like this. And the Orthodox are consistent in that they would refuse to take any public office. The, 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 this is the position of the Jew in society. He is not a citizen. He was never a citizen until Napoleon created this fiction that Jews could be citizens in France because he wanted to attack Russia and he needed support of Jews going through the Pale of the Settlement. So that's where this fiction began. Uh, but it's a fiction. It's a fiction. Jews are incapable of representing the interest of the majority population because they fear and hate the majority population because they're all a bunch of anti-Semites. How can I defend those people? They're going to put me in a gas chamber. And you well, agrees with me. Yeah, uh, we've of course we've seen that um, this uh, recently well, with the um, announcement of well, one thing is this idea that the Jews, you know, they have an idea of being a unique position to reform, improve or, or disrupt society. This is you know, uh, their idea of tikkun olam, right? The idea of reform the world, repair the world. Repair the world, that's right. Uh, you saw, so you saw that World Jewish Congress, uh, World Jewish Congress video. Where she admits guilt or takes credit, depends how you look at the, each issue, but you, she... Uh, Wait a minute, yeah. did, did you do this to promote E. Michael Jones's book, the uh, the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, everything I said in that book is what you just said in your video. Why am I called an anti-Semite for agreeing with the World Jewish Congress? So the lady comes on and says, Jews are always right. We were right on abortion. We were right on gay marriage. We were right on homosexuality. Well, this is my point. You use Tikkun Olam as an excuse to destroy the culture uh, where, of the country you live in. And you think you're being virtuous for promoting abortion. Well, honey, I, I understand why you think that way. It's because you're Jewish, but don't expect the rest of the world to go along with that idea. You're destroying our culture. And you've got this smug, sanctimonious attitude about yourself that makes you obnoxious in the eyes of normal people. And you don't get it. But if you find her obnoxious, you're an anti-Semite. That's right. As soon as you say, well, as soon as I say, wait a minute, honey, we're not going to, you're an anti-Semite. This is obvious anti-Semitism because you don't believe that abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. 
This is obnoxious. And well, I guess uh, someone like Charlie Moskowitz might argue that that she and the World Jewish Congress aren't Jewish. That's right. Okay. Oh, well, who are you? I, I've said this to Charles before. Are you the Jewish Pope, Charles? Is it you or is it Ben Shapiro? Because every time I bring this up, they say they're not real Jews. Well, who are you to say? This is, there's no Jewish magisterium. It's basically majority rules. And there are more people involved in the World Jewish Congress than there are in, than Charles Moskowitz or Ben Shapiro. Yeah, this isn't to say there aren't Jews that are consistent with Logos or, or closer to it who aren't um, uh, troublemakers or disruptors of society or subversives, but the, they hold no very, they hold very little, no power within the Jewish community. Those who hold power uh, do ascribe, uh, you know, prescribe to um, subscribe to rather uh, uh, to Kuhn And there are engaged in subversive, virtually every destructive subversive cause of the past hundred, 120 years uh, has been uh, spearheaded uh, or had had a significant um, role of Jews in it, whether it's communism uh, you know, gay rights, abortion, where the, where it, it brags about it. even something like, as hollowed as the civil rights movement. You and I both know that you know there's a lot more to that story, and that was used sort of as a as a regime change operation in the South, and also what we see today with sort of the anti-white hysteria being still used, blacks being used uh, to go against the white majority. You know? No, no, Ignatiev created. He's the Jew who created critical race theory. So, I mean, but basically, why am I being demonized for agreeing with the World Jewish Congress? Explain this to me. I don't get it. Yeah, it's that um, sort of paradox where if you if you're if you support it, you brag about it. But if you see it as as a negative, then you're a conspiracy theory. If you acknowledge it, we see that with the Great Replacement immigration policy. You know, we see that. You know, again, uh, even you know, politicians like Joe Biden, our current president. You know, has acknowledged publicly the role of Jews in promoting these this, these things, uh, like uh, gay marriage, right? Yeah, yeah. So if you if it's a good thing, so the the Jews suddenly exist as a category. Yes, the Jews. They're a great bunch of people. They're the most moral people in the world. They believe in tikkun olam. And if you say, well, wait a minute, I don't think abortion uh, is a good thing. Well, you're an anti-Semite. That's why you're saying it. And why did you bring Jews up when it comes to abortion? There are plenty of people who aren't Jewish. Who get abortions? You, you, you only brought it up because you're an anti-Semite. This is the way the argument goes. It's back and forth, back and forth. That's why it's better to talk to a robot than a Jew. The White House this week announced a national strat. It was a sixty-page report, a national strategy to counter anti-Semitism, and it cites reports from the ADL, a record number of anti-Semitic, I guess, hate crimes. Of course. You know the source is ADL, so they have a conflict of interest there. Obviously, their business is uh, <laughs> reporting these things, um, but it's it the President Biden himself came out and said that uh, number one, uh, one chief priority of his administration is to uh, counter this rising tide of anti-Semitism, which seeks which he claims is threatens to engulf our democracy, and of course, in defense of our democracy, the the White House, working in conjunction with the ADL. And various other uh, non-governmental agencies, um, the Congress, uh, I guess think tanks and foundations, it, he's calling on uh, all of them to uh, actually to go after things like hate speech. So as it turns out, the way ordinarily, like uh, we've been told that democracy or a free society, that free speech is an integral part of that. But apparently in order to save our democracy, 
they have to suppress free speech because free speech inevitably will produce criticism of Jewish power. And so, but, but to them, any criticism is anti-Semitism. Right. Well, that, that's what, um, that abortion debacle, uh, in Pennsylvania was, that was an attack on free speech and it was using the government to go after, uh, speech that Jews don't like, but that's not the main threat. The main threat is not government now. The main threat is private entities that are controlled by Jews, like Google. If you type in E. Michael Jones on the Google search engine, guess what's the first thing you will find? What's the first thing that will come up? Because oh, notorious anti-Semite. It's the ADL. Oh, the ADL. Yeah, description of me. I'm sorry. Yeah. ADL dossier on me or the ADL complaint about me. Now, are you telling me that this was just a computer? Uh, making that choice? No. It tells you that the Jews control Google. It's that simple. Well, no one should be allowed to control Google. No one should be allowed to control the flow of public information uh, and thwart anybody's the, 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 the desire of people to understand things. No one should be able to thwart that. And yet the Jews have total veto power over all the flow of information. So much so that Harari thinks that robots are now a threat. Robot, those robots are anti-Semitic. Well, the Biden administration is ex explicitly calling on these non-governmental bodies to engage in 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 speech in suppression of free speech and suppression of information. In fact, they had openly announced they're going to work with them to do such that you know in the, under the language of deplatforming. Policing right. hate, and so basically, hate hate speech is a way to just to suppress free speech because. That's the big threat in my, in, in, according to the way I understand things. And it began with uh, Joe Lieberman basically going after Julian Assange by uh, denying him access to, uh, I think it was PayPal or something like that, these payments. Yeah, that was, I remember that was, mm -hmm. without, without, without any, uh, not even an indictment, right? Yeah. And so that saves the government all of this expense of indicting someone. You just, cut off their financial uh, ability to make a living. And, and that's become normalized, unfortunately, yeah. Well, certainly in Canada. I mean, Canada, they crushed that trucker mm -hmm. by uh, freezing their bank accounts. But again, that's the Holocaust narrative. So we have Yara Sachs, the uh, member of parliament. Honk, honk equals Heil Hitler. This, this is the point of the Holocaust narrative. If you have a, a type of speech you want to shut down, maneuver whoever you don't like into a position where he's a Nazi, and then you immediately win the argument. Yeah, see what happened with Roger Waters? Yeah. You know, the Pink that. Floyd guy? Um, he he was given this performance, I think, for 40 years, where he comes out in this getup, this sort of totalitarian getup, and he's being accused. He was in Germany, where he's given this concert before in Germany, too, The Wall concert that you know and he came out in a sort of a, a, a totalitarian looking outfit sort of a mishmash of uh commissar nazi look and because it looked authoritarian i guess there was some leather in it he was accused of wearing a nazi style uniform and being investigated by german police now this is because he's he's being he's been very critical of israel recently right so look, look how that's being abused yeah so what it is is some jew is screaming at the prosecutor, don't just stand there, do something, or you'll lose your job. Are you an anti-Semite? Do you agree with Roger Waters? Maybe we should find another. Uh, so yes, yes, sir. Yabo. 
Yeah, he was. He said he was wearing a swastika like emblem. Yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? I was in India, and the buses are covered with swastikas in India. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, he's being targeted because of his political speech regarding Israel. Of course, based on um, the ADL, any criticism of Israel is is anti-Semitic and therefore de facto illegal. I hope you know, maybe one day de jure illegal in, in our country. And that's how political speech is being suppressed with this sort of this catch-all accusation of anti-Semitism, which apparently is a uh, next to white supremacy is the number one threat in America. I think it is. I think it is. I think <laughs> I think that the Jews manufacture this white supremacy thing, which which is non-existent uh, in order to be the hedge around the Torah. You know, mm -hmm. but the main thing is the anti-Semitism thing. Uh, which will uh, derail your career. Well, here's what's interesting. Now, again, this is where uh, controlling the narrative or uh, manipulating the language is very important. Uh, with this latest announcement by the White House regarding the uh, national, you know, strategy on combating anti-Semitism, has there ever been a country there where, where Jews have had the most freedom ever in the world, other than the United States? But nonetheless, we're being instructed that, um, I mean, to the country's detriment, really, as we see. But but they're saying. That somehow it's on the verge of you know coming under the control of Nazis or something, but in this uh, announcement, uh, yeah, the uh, the White House says today the Biden Harris administration is releasing the first ever U.S. national strategy to counter anti-Semitism. This strategy includes over 100 new actions the, the administration will take to raise awareness of anti-Semitism and its threat to American democracy, protect Jewish communities, reverse normalization of anti-Semitism, and build cross-community solidarity. While anti-Semitic incidents most directly and intensely affect the Jewish community, anti-Semitism threatens all of us. Anti-Semitic conspiracy theories fuel other forms of hatred, discrimination, and bias, including discrimination against other religious minorities, racism, sexism, and anti-LGBTQI plus hate. Anti-Semitism yeah. seeks to divide Americans from one another. <laughs> that's, that's rich. Erodes trust in government and non-government institutions and undermines our democracy. So this, you see that it's interesting intersectionality there is. So if you're opposed to say grooming children in schools or drag queen story hour, or you don't like corporations like Target or Bud Light pushing sexual perversion, you are effectively an anti-Semite. That's right. That's exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. had the, when the Proud Boys showed up at the local library here, uh, they immediately had a t uh, you know the TV cameras are down there immediately, and who do they bring out to, to discuss it? The local representative of the ADL. Well, what's that got to do with transgenderism or drag queen? Oh, oh, they promote that. Well, I thought it was anti-Semitic to say they promoted that. It's like the same thing with the Biden administration. You put a Jew in charge, and he messes up. He makes a mess of things. We've already gone down the list. <laughs> Is there a bigger a bigger mess than the Ukraine right now? And who is responsible? The Jews are responsible for that. And, and you've got a guy named uh, like Anthony Blinken, who has to begin every conversation by saying that he had uh, relatives who died in the Holocaust, can't negotiate, makes a mess of things. People get annoyed. And then suddenly oh, it's anti-Semitism. Yeah, didn't Merrick Garland fly to Ukraine last year? Right. Couple, uh, back in April or something? Right after he, he was grilled by Josh Hawley on the Senate. And he's talking about opening up a war crimes tribunal or something against Russia? Two days later, he's shaking uh, hands with uh, Zelensky. 
wait a minute, this is the attorney general. Why is the attorney general in the Ukraine? And why is he shaking hands with the president of a foreign country? Well, because they're both Jews. This is a Jewish operation, start to finish. And the future is Jewish too, because what they're doing is basically driving all the Ukrainians out so that BlackRock, Larry Fink, and those Jews can come in and buy up all the best farm country in the world for pennies on the dollar. That's what this is about. And then the other collateral issue here is, well, where did all those Ukrainians go? Well, they went to Ireland or Poland. Oh, wait a minute. They're two of the biggest Catholic countries in Europe. And you're going to destabilize them with this mass migration that you created by creating this war. So this is the way that they're working this whole operation. And Chris Merrick Garland invoked his Jewish identity as a reason for going because apparently his uh, his parents or grandparents survived the Holocaust. As if that's relevant. <laughs> so 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 we are going to fight Russia because of wait a minute, I think I'm confused here. Didn't the Russians liberate Auschwitz? Why I, I'm confused here. Aren't the Ukrainians Nazis? Well, it's, you're you're the expert on narratives, Dr. Jones. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, it doesn't seem to if you have any like memory of history, at least narratives, at least have you know but yes, narratives can change, I guess, to suit modern political purposes. What is the message of the Holocaust narrative? Truth is the opinion of the powerful. That has been the message. So it got started as wartime propaganda and then Hollywood got involved and they, if they say it, it's true. The classic example in my book is uh, the New York Times defending Yeshi Kaczynski's book, The Painted Bird. Uh, it turns out that it wasn't true. One more story. Oh, wait a minute, it wasn't true. Uh, but it's a good story. And anyway, truth is the opinion of the powerful. So the question is, if the New York Times says it, is it true? Even though Yeshi Kaczynski was exposed as a liar. Well, the New York Times says there's no evidence of Biden uh, corruption. So <laughs> this, is, this is what we're saying. And so the question is, is truth? No, it's not the opinion of the powerful. Truth is great and it will prevail. Truth is a transcendental. And so what we're going to see here is the triumph of truth over sooner or later. Well, the, I think the, the hysteria we're seeing among uh, the organized Jewish community, as it reflected in the Biden administration, the Biden administration is pretty much controlled by by, by Jews, is a, is a response to this emerging truth, that sort of this stubborn truth that tends to come out regard, despite their, their best efforts with all the propaganda. So what happens when you can't refute uh, someone's position in an argument? Well, we'll get uh, we'll make it illegal. That was their solution to the to the Holocaust narrative. If you disagree, you're going to jail. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What about uh, Binyam, uh, Benjamin Vilkomirsky's book, Fragments? Turns out the guy is not uh, who wrote it is not a Jew at all. He's a Swiss, a Swiss Protestant orphan. He was never near Latvia. Well, is that Holocaust denial to say that? Guess who was the big supporter of this phony-assed uh, Vilkomirsky narrative? Biggest supporter, Debbie Lipstadt, who backed it even after the 60 Minutes expose. 
exposing it. Was that Holocaust denial, Debbie? What about the the uh, the lady uh, uh, Misha who traveled nine hundred miles across Europe in a pack of wolves to liberate her parents from from uh, Auschwitz? That's an incredible story. Well, it is incredible because it didn't happen. Is that Holocaust denial? Well, at a certain point, I guess it was because they made a movie. The French made a movie out of this thing. And that was part of the Holocaust narrative. And if you denied it, you were a Holocaust denier. But now it's not because everybody knows it was a fraud. Yeah, the IHRA uh, condemns or like bans, prohibits the uh, accusation of of Jews exaggerating the Holocaust. But the fact that those stories had to be retracted and the fact that I think one time Auschwitz claimed 4 million victims, now it's down to less than a million. Uh, so obviously they've been guilty of exaggeration, but nevertheless, you point that out, you're guilty of, of those, um, of I guess, of those uh, of those rules that the, the IHRA has imposed on the Holocaust. You know. How about how about saying that uh, I, I deny that there, uh, there were no gas chambers the statement, there were no gas chambers in Dachau. Now, at a certain point, that was Holocaust denial. Mm -hmm. But now even the people at Dachau, the official government agency, says, no, there were no gas chambers at Dachau. So what's Holocaust denial? What does that mean? Well, these are just, I guess, again, example of historical fact versus narratives, I guess. Narratives can change. It's the yeah. official narrative. Mm -hmm. Powerful create an official narrative, and they're drunk with their power and their arrogance, and they think that because we say it, it's true. Well, it's not. That's not going to work. Yeah, it's interesting. I was watching um, a band of brothers. It came out uh, two thousand one. Right. I think it was. Uh, I had my memory. Right. I think it was the Sunday before September eleventh, two thousand one. That that. The uh, show premiered. Interesting timing for all that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that was all part of that uh, late 90s sort of uh, greatest generation celebration that the baby boomers were doing, <laughs> you know, with uh, Saving Private Ryan. And of course, Schindler's List was, you know, 1993, 94. Um, but there's a couple scenes I thought, you know, it's a well produced series. Now it's about the sort of the, the experience of an infantryman, I think, is Easy Company, part of the 82nd Airborne. And their, uh, you know, their uh, campaign across Western Europe in 1944-45, and um, there's a couple scenes I thought were very interesting. One is uh, the um, liberation of Dachau, where they enter the camp and the conditions are awful, and their their soldiers just taken back by the you know uh, the brutality of the Nazis. Which of course is not not quite explained to the viewer what's going on here. We're just I guess we're supposed to understand that it's a quote a death camp. Um, of course. Uh, the conditions in the camps throughout Europe, these uh, 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 you know, these camps uh, were uh, made a lot worse by the Allied bombing campaign, and also just collapsed the German economy in the latter half of the war. And uh, but nevertheless, we're told that it was just the brutality of the Nazis that did this. Uh, but because of the conditions in the camps, uh, they don't show the 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 executions that were, were carried out by the U.S. soldiers against the Germans and all that. Um, but there is a, a Jewish soldier who is allowed to go out and summarily execute a, a, a guard or a commandant of the camp after. And they allow him to do it because this is because he's Jewish and Jewish vengeance is always justified. Right. And there's, a, there's an interview with um, one of the officers 
I believe the uh, the the major, the main character, and he they're talking about the camps, and it's an interesting narrative because they're talking about the camps and the conditions, and he says we went into the camps, and Eisenhower wanted it filmed because we want one of the soldiers to know why we were fighting this war. Right. That's interesting. That's a narrative, right? That's like, well, wait a second. There are dead people in the camps, lots of bodies. Conditions are awful. But why are the conditions awful? And why are there dead bodies? Is it the gas chamber? No, it's not the gas chamber. Is it because they're executed? No, it's because of typhus and starvation and these things. Right. People were dying all throughout Germany at that part, that stage of the war, particularly people who are, you know, who are emulated in the cities by the Allied bombs. But that's not talked about. Um, there's this other scene in it where the soldiers are marching west. They're being in their personnel carriers and all the jerk and there's thousands of German soldiers. Um, so they're headed, the, the soldiers are headed east into Germany, the soldiers are heading west into the camps, perhaps into the Rhine Meadow camps, but that's not portrayed in the movie. And one soldier starts losing it. So he's saying, why did you do this to us? And you, 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 uh, you servile fools. You, you disrupted us, you know, our lives, brought us here to fight this war. And I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> the infantry, the German soldier had no more say in his governmental policy than you did. <laughs> you're just, you're just a servile, you're a draftee. These, this is all narratives that were spun up, as if the Germans were somehow uniquely guilty for this. It's just funny. It's it's very effective propaganda because it's not over the top, but it, it spins a narrative of the war, uh, uh, what what Americans think of the war, and and uh, of course this this uh, creates the some um, obviously the narrative that came out of the war that has been developed since the war has created this uh, Jewish supremacy in our country. Which right. enables them now to declare a national strategy to combat anti-Semitism, which is nothing less than the war on free speech. Right. Now, free speech defines America. It's what America is. You've said it before. It's Thomas Paine that said, America, we have no king. The law is king. And if we don't have the law, then America has nothing. If America doesn't have free speech, it doesn't have anything. And to the extent that the Jew organized Jewish community is against free speech, they're anti-American, and they need to be expelled or dethroned because they're, that is anti-American. It's the crucial political issue of our age it's jewish power jewish control of the congress uh the jewish disruption of representative democracy all of these things we have to deal with this issue the jewish control of our foreign policy that leads us into one war after another the jewish control of every narrative uh the jewish control of the catholic church at this point to some extent uh, just just to bring you back to reality uh, with that uh, Dachau, the camp, uh, when the Americans arrived there, they were supposedly scandalized by the dead bodies. Mm -hmm. uh, my father's best friend was in the group that liberated Dachau. And I remember seeing as a, as a boy seeing pictures of those dead bodies. So they were real dead bodies there. But as you said, how they died. Uh, were they gas chambers? Yeah, they were. There was a time when they said they had gas chambers in Dachau. Now we know that that's that's false. But what happened? What did happen in Dachau? If you want a, a, a actual documentary proof, those American soldiers basically lined up the German guards who had been disarmed and mowed them down with a machine gun. 145 Germans were murdered that day. That's a war crime. Well, you need some counter narrative to absolve you from that war crime. Uh, there, there was, uh, and and that's that's where the Holocaust came in. So the the, uh, the this narrative. So when Eisenhower shows up at Ordruf, nobody knows about Ordruf anymore. 
Uh, it was the first camp that was liberated and there are dead bodies all over the place. But nobody ever maintained that there were gas chambers in Ordruf. It was too small, it was too insignificant. So how they die? Well, we're not going to tell you how they died. We're going to we're going to uh, p uh, impose some category on that. And so Eisenhower, very aware of the uh, the power of psychological warfare, got General McClure uh, to bring uh, C. D. Jackson, a crucial figure in the 20th century, uh, involved in the CIA. He was the man who got Eisenhower elected president. And he's the guy who orchestrated this ridiculous march out to Buchenwald and holding up shrunken heads and lampshades that's supposedly made out of human skin. All that's going down the memory hole. That was definitely part of the narrative. It served a political purpose for justifying United States war crimes. And everybody knows it's false now. And it's used to deny the Germans identity or at least a, a sense of... Um... A, a national pride and identity where they can actually defend their interests. Now they're just um, a pawn in NATO's, uh, you know. Yeah, so, the, so the question is, Debbie, I have a question. Is it Holocaust denial to say that those Germans did not shrink heads? That they were taken from a museum? Uh, that the Indians in the Amazon shrink heads, but Germans don't do this, don't know how to do it, wouldn't do it even if they did know how? Is it Holocaust denial to say that that lampshade is not made out of Jewish skin? Because that was the claim. Mm -hmm. Claim that C.D. Jackson made, holding it up. You can see Billy Wilder was there filming it. That's the claim. Is that Holocaust denial? Yeah, I had a book when I was uh, a, a teenager, a pictorial history of the Third Reich. And it had pictures of shrunken heads and lampshades. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the 80s. And it's just been forgotten now. You know, yeah. it's the same way that the um, the fire pits, L.A. Wiesel writes about, right? Flaming pits. Yeah. Well, Ailey Wiesel is a Holocaust denier because he denied that there were gas chambers at Auschwitz. He, he never mentioned a gas chamber. But his defense, that narrative hadn't been created yet. <laughs> well, he was the creator of the narrative at that point. Yeah. Yeah, uh, he uh, and that Frenchman who won the Nobel Prize, who basically wrote Night, translate got from Yiddish into French. Um, and he he actually escaped with I think with, with his brother or father with the Germans. Yeah, why did he do that? Yeah, he at, at Auschwitz. He yeah. Waited in Auschwitz to be liberated by the Soviet army, and instead he retreated to Bergen-Belsen with the uh, with the uh, with the Germans. You know, why not stick around and be liberated? Why not? If the Germans were so homicidal, why did you retreat with them? That's the same story with Anne Frank. Most people think she died at Auschwitz. No, she died of typhus. Was it in Belsen? Um, but where she, you know. With Adit Stein, the Pope, God help us. The Pope said, uh, I think he said that Adit Stein died in gas chambers at, in the gas chambers at Auschwitz. Yes, that's another problem with all of it. Picked up, uh, she had become a Catholic at that point. She was no longer a Jew. But this is when you believe in the racial narrative. So, so she's got Jewish DNA. Mm -hmm. She got picked up. She left and nobody ever saw her again. So nobody knows how she died. So if she, chances are she died of typhus because more people were dying of typhus than any other 
than anything else, uh, uh, probably more than bombs and bullets. That's why Zyklon B was used. It was a, a fumigant, right? It was a, a, a pesticide. This, this has been, this that's is another a, narrative, right? <laughs> this is part, of, part of the story I tell at the beginning, there were, yeah. there were Jews. <laughs> People, uh, anyway, there were Jews uh, after the pogroms in, in the Pale of the Settlement. The Jews head westward. And, it's like 1900, right? No, I'm talking about 18, the 1880s. 18, oh, okay, really? 1890s. And I said this, it, sound, it sounds horribly anti-Semitic, but there were no, hygiene was unknown. Modern hygiene was unknown in the shtetl. And mm -hmm. they had become so used to the lice uh, that they had become immune. They were carriers of typhus and they didn't get it. But wherever they showed up, typhus epidemics would break out, including, uh, uh, you know, Rikers, uh, Rikers Island. What, no, what, what was the place where, the, uh, where they were interned? Oh, Ellis Island. Ellis Island, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, what the Germans did, so in order to get to Ellis Island, the Jews had to walk, go through Germany. And the Germans were the opposite because they had the state of the art hygiene. Koch and all those people were Germans. They were uh, experts at combating contagious disease. And that meant when the, you, they were taken off the train. Now, this is a, a lady who wrote a book about, she, the book came out in 1910. So the experience was before that, probably 10 years before that, with this mass migration of Russian Jews to, uh, to, to New York. They were all taken out off the train. They're brought into the, into the shower room. They have to take off their clothes. Their heads are shaved. The clothes are taken into another room, and they're fumigated with Cyclone B. And then the ladies go into the shower, and they get a shower, and they get soap and water, and they get shower. And then they get their clothes back and they get put back on the train. Now, during the reports that were coming back from the Polish uh, resistance, those two things got conflated. The shower and the fumigation got conflated so that there was gas coming out of the shower head. Never happened. Never happened. But it's a, a very convenient narrative. Yes. A very convenient amalgamation of narratives. Yeah. It's, so you can. So if you're in. So if you're in London, which is where the Polish government in exile was at this point, and you're getting reports from Poland, uh, the reports engage in this kind of conflation, and then that gets broadcast. That gets broadcast by the BBC back into Poland, and it becomes comes this feedback loop. Where the more reports that come in, the more broadcast you make, and the more reports come in, and suddenly it becomes this narrative of of the gas chamber. That's how it came about. And the idea of the final solution, the attempt, the uh, sort of the uh, mechanized or industrialized killing uh, of the Jews by the Third Reich, the so-called final solution, serves a very important post-war propaganda objective of creating the state of Israel, because simply Israel should, would not have been created without that narrative. That's right. You're exactly right. That was one of the main purposes of the Holocaust narrative from the Jews' point of view. So in addition to exonerating people like Eisenhower and the Americans from war crimes, it also uh, set up the, the stage for the creation of the state of Israel. Uh, these are the purposes. Powerful people uh, use these as the narrative that would justify. Again, now it's justifying war crimes against the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. The ethnic cleansing of villages like Deir Yassin by the Stern Gang, uh, Menachem Begin, 
I remember Joe Sobern uh, said, what do you call a terrorist in Israel? The answer is Mr. President. <laughs> yes, they're all there. <laughs> so you had Yitzhak Shamir and uh, Menachem Begin, both uh, terrorists who engaged in the murder of Palestinians. And because uh, even as early as the 30s and 40s, you had uh, Jewish power in the United States was uh, immense, particularly in media, but also sort of informally with organized crime. And with the ADL uh, even early as that, through Meyer Lansky um, uh, being able to uh, blackmail people like Herbert Hoover, I mean, uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, rather, sorry. Yeah. Uh, the FBI was pretty much blunted from preventing them from engaging in a lot of illegal activity. Now, illegal arms shipments to Israel and and the Afro, you know, to the to, to the Jews in, in in Palestine at the time, so they were getting a lot of weaponry that was supposedly it was embargoed, but the U.S. government uh, really couldn't uh, prevent it from occurring because of all the compromised officials and blackmail and right. all the dirty deals being done by organized crime along with the organized Jews in the United States and Great Britain at the time. There was so so there was a reaction. Uh, there were adults in the room back then, and uh, the crucial issue was the Morgenthau plan. Mm -hmm. The Jew Morgenthau was going to starve uh, the Germans to death. And at this point, people like Herbert Hoover, a real hero at that point, who brought uh, the starving the, the German, the starving Germans to the attention of the American people. And uh, the Quakers got involved in uh, supplying food to these people. And then a lot of people jumped in with care packages and stuff like that. Uh, but it, basically, it was people like Herbert Hoover or General Patton uh, who said, this is Semitic vengeance. Mm -hmm. And we as Americans cannot allow these people to ruin our standing in the world by their lust for revenge. And at that point, uh, you know, Harry Roosevelt died. Morgan had this magic power over Roosevelt that nobody could explain. Now Roosevelt's dead. Harry Truman takes office. Morgenthau demands that he be taken to the Quebec conference and Truman, he says, if I don't go, if you don't let me go, I'm going to resign. And Harry Truman said, okay, resign. And that was the end. Like the spell was broken. And we switched from the Morgenthau plan to the Marshall plan, which had its own problems, but at least we were going to rehabilitate Germany. We were not treating them uh, with Semitic vengeance. That was a big turning point. We have to have the same type of turning point now. We can't go on this way. We cannot go on with people like Merrick Garland and Anthony Blinken running the country and foreign and domestic policy according to the principles of Jew Semitic vengeance. That's what it is. That's why Merrick Garland hates pro-lifers, goes after pro-lifers. It's Semitic vengeance. And we can't allow these people to commandeer the government of the United States so that they can carry out their grudges. That's the classic example, is the FBI getting in bed with the ADL. Yep. And again, go, going back to the Holocaust narrative, that narrative is very important because it's the basis for Jewish power because it immunizes them from any criticism because anyone who criticizes organized Jewish power, which is a reality, uh, you'd be accused of being uh, something like a Nazi. And being creating another a second holocaust interesting enough i think it was the um recently uh ronda santis uh the was it the NAACP 
who uh, called for a travel advisory for Florida. Uh, was it them who accused Ron DeSantis of being a next Hitler or something? I thought it was ironic, <laughs> given his slavish attitude towards Jewish power. <laughs> you know, but everyone's a second Hitler. Everything's not the Holocaust. But it's very because because that Holocaust narrative again has created. Uh, uh, it also uh, speaks to America itself being a very liberal society, so it's very. Uh, uh, vulnerable to infiltration controlled by a group, particularly a group as cohesive, uh, has a strong identity like the Jews. At the same time, liberalism in general denies any type of collective identity for other groups, particularly ethnic whites, where supposed to all just individuals, right? But the Jews are allowed to organize and identify. As many as 9,000 Jewish organizations have come together to defend our democracy. The fact that they're as many as 9,000 self-identifying Jewish organizations uh, getting together and coordinating, and the fact that the White House would have a special conference among Jews to talk about anti-Semitism, the fact that the national strategy to combat anti-Semitism is being, is being spearheaded by Jews, some might say that's a conflict of interest, meaning you might, might, might want to have some other views partake, partake in this effort. But obviously, it's a Jewish effort, and it's almost laughable because it's so obvious. But it's, it's created a sort of a... Um, our liberal society, the Jewish, uh, the the Holocaust narrative, the fact that Jews are immune from any meaningful criticism, lest we be accused of being anti-Semitic, has created a certain a de facto philo-Semitic Jewish supremacy in this country, where you can't criticize Jews because then you're anti-Semitic for acknowledging Jewish power. Um, a sort of a, sort of a, a, a Jewish cultural supersessionism, which has sort of supplanted Christianity as a dominant culture, and created supremacy politically where you have a situation we're, we're c c confronted with today um a good examples good examples los angeles dodgers they host the sisters of perpetual indulgence this is a traveling troop of homosexuals who they mimic or mock catholicism in a city like los angeles which is a lot of catholics still i i, I think can you imagine if a, if a professional baseball team uh invited a group that Made its you know, like a living or, or or was identified as a group that mocked Jews. Would that ever happen? No, no. The fact that it has happened, what does that say? The fact that professional baseball now seems fit to unite with a group like Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, and thinking that's a good marketing scheme. Well, and uh, no Catholic should ever go to a Dodgers game. No, that's simple. How many uh, uh, homosexuals are out there? As opposed to how many Catholics are out there. So just do do the math. This is the era of the marketing disaster. Ha! <laughs> yes. One more. One more in the after Bud Light and Target with the transgendered underwear or something like that. And now you have the the Dodgers thing. Well, let the people the 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 Bud Light consumption has dropped another thirty percent this week. Well, so, according to the White House, not drinking Bud Light, not going to Dodgers games is anti-Semitic. <laughs> <laughs> what was it right, a couple of years ago when there was like no nut November, when they were telling uh, young men to uh, to you know forswear uh, pornography and stop masturbation, and uh, Rolling Stone said it was anti-Semitic. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, really, if you know if you're familiar with the authoritarian personality, you understand the logic behind that, right? The perverse logic behind it. there is sort of a you know as men become uh more responsible and stronger and develop families and these things based on the authoritarian personality if you uh have a family and you're a strong father figure and uh you have children that's the seed germ of fascism that is so yeah. fa strong families are fascist 
That's the conclusion you have to draw. And why are strong families fascist? Because strong families raise uh, people who have strong individual identity and they can resist this type of pressure. They don't want that. Mm -hmm. People to be docile sex robots and wage slaves. That's the whole point. And you That's break the whole point. The culture, break it up, break up the culture, take control of the narrative, demonize the majority population as immoral uh, anti-Semites. And that's how you take control of the culture. Yeah. And the more they press these things like Sisters of Poster Dolls and Dodgers Games, Target, uh, these things, uh, it, it obviously it it it, uh, it brings on a backlash or a reaction, which then they claim is anti-Semitic. <laughs> yeah, this is, so yeah. they're in the business of creating anti-Semitism. That's the ADLs in that business. The ADL got started by trying by uh, trying to exonerate a child murderer, child molester by the name of Leo Frank. That's mm -hmm. how it got started, and they've yep. never lost that uh, that ability all the way up to Jeffrey Epstein. They gave an award to the first lawyer who gave Jeffrey Epstein his sweetheart deal, where he was basically living in a hotel and could have uh, his sex slaves show up on a regular basis. Uh, second time around, uh, he, he um, you probably think he committed suicide, but I think he was murdered. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, uh, I, th I think we covered it, right? Yeah, I think so. The article is why it's easier to talk to a robot than to a Jew. I saw it on the UNS review. Now, is this going to be in Culture Wars? Yeah, it'll be in Culture Wars too. Yeah. Okay. And uh, the Holocaust narrative is due out in a few weeks? Yeah, it's at the printer. Excellent. Okay. So look forward to that. I'll and... send you a review copy as soon as I get copies. Oh, be great. Yeah. Then uh, you know, we'll go through it. Uh, that'd be interesting uh, to go through, uh, to read through. Uh, the um, We can discuss that. Um, excellent. Um, that's, uh, well, let's see, that might create a stir where you think you'll be a victim of a dynamic silence. <laughs> Way beyond dynamic silence now. Now, um, okay. I'm, I'm one of the top 10. So when, when they talk about all of this anti-Semitism thing, they're talking about me. Yeah. Talking about me. Well, the publication of this book, would that be reported by the ADL as an incident anti-Semitic incident and add to the stats. <laughs> what are going to do about it? They're not going to do a damn thing about it. So, because we live in America. God bless America. Yep, free speech. Uh, and they simply cannot contend with the scrutiny that comes with real free speech, which is why they've been trying to shut shut down the internet and uh, impose all those restrictions in the past five years. They can't so deal with deal with the uh, defending uh, what America is all about by having this conversation. Yeah, for a group that's supposed to have higher verbal IQ, they're really afraid of free debate. I find that ironic. That is ironic. Something to think about. So, okay, Dr. Jones, thank you so much. I know I've kept you past, you know. Uh, thank you. I, thank you so much for a great discussion. That's Dr. E. Michael Jones, the editor of Culture Wars Magazine, culturewars.com. You can go there and order the books and, of course, get a, a subscription to the magazine. Thanks so much. Thank you. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.